This is Pastor Tim. He is not unfamiliar with us, and we welcome him back, right? He, he's only here today. Okay, that's appropriate. Good. You guys learn quick. So let me just pray for Tim. So Lord God, I pray that you would bless the words of Tim's mouth this morning. I just pray that he would be bold in what he says to us today and that you would speak to us through him. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, it is good to be back with you uh, again this morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know who I am. I know there's a couple of unfamiliar faces that I recognize or don't recognize this morning, so that's, that's great. But uh, so Steph and I, uh, my wife over here, we're the pastors, associate pastors here for uh, seven years, uh, and we just left in uh, end of November uh, for a new church uh, in Plattsville, Ontario, which uh, I'm sure none of you have heard of, and that's totally okay. Uh, but uh, we uh, are at a little, little, well, not a little church, in a little town there, I should say, Plattsville. It's, uh, you know, like a couple stop signs, no stoplight, no gas station, uh, but it's a pretty awesome town, and uh, God's been doing some pretty cool things, especially this summer, uh, and so, the, yeah, I just want to say thanks. So before I even start, uh, you guys gave me, when I left, you guys gave me a, a month sabbatical before I left. Uh, left here at the end of November and didn't have to start there till beginning of January. And I just want to tell you that that month off was uh, extremely helpful for me and my family and just uh, blessed us, gave us that time of refreshing. Uh, Steph and I said it was probably the first time that we could actually, uh, in seven years, pick what church we wanted to go to on Sunday morning, uh, and particularly around Christmas, uh, to be able to celebrate Christmas with family and stuff is unique. Uh, as a pastor, you don't get the opportunities necessarily on Sunday mornings to go uh, to church with your family. Uh, you know, it's life's crazy. You're trying to figure out, find your sermon notes and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but it was just really a great time. I just want to thank you. Uh, our kids are getting a little bit bigger now. That's uh, them up there. Uh, they're uh, all dressed up for our uh, day camp. And that's probably a bit of a longer story, but one of the cool things that God has been doing in the town of Plattsville is uh, our family pastors decided, you know, we've been applying for this summer student grant every summer, and we get one, maybe two uh, summer students who can work for us from uh, totally paid for by the government. We said, I think we're asking too small. We're going to go out on a limb, and we're going to ask for 12 students. And the government approved all 12 ministry positions. And so, uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And so, as a result, we were able to uh, we just this week finished four uh, weeks of day camp, uh, fully staffed with 12 summer students and two uh, adults that we had to hire just to supervise the summer students. Uh, and so it's been amazing to see 14 new staff come on for six weeks. They've got a week left of debrief, uh, but it's just been amazing. We've been able to invest in 101 different kids, uh, 120 uh, well, it was, it was set to 120, but our family pastor forgot to take the registration down. And so some of the weeks ended up topping out around 50, uh, 55, uh, so when it was a plan for 40. So, uh, but we got, it, w- it was just an amazing time. And our kids dressed up. This past week was uh, uh, 
Princess and Superhero Week, uh, and so they uh, were rocking the superhero fatigues uh, this day, the day before it was the princess fatigues, so, uh, but yeah, so anyways, it's been amazing. Uh, Hannah starts school this year uh, in JK, believe it or not, Nora's starting grade one, uh, and it's just where the time flies. Uh, yeah, I know. I said to Steph yesterday, like, I feel like our summer has just totally evaporated. I don't know if that's how you feel, uh, but we spent two weeks at Mishawa where we were able to see some of you, uh, three weeks that our kids went to day camp, and so it's like just flying by. Uh, so, but yeah, anyways, uh, we're going to look this morning from uh, Mark chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to there. And uh, just as kind of some precursor remarks about Mark, um, Mark is uh, what we consider to be the first, cha- uh, first book of the Bible of the New Testament that was written, uh, sorry, first gospel written, I should say. Uh, so Mark, Matthew, and Luke kind of... Uh, took a lot of their ideas from Mark. And uh, one of the reasons that we call them the Gospels is because of this passage at the very beginning of Mark, Mark 1.1, and it says this, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, One of the funny things is as you look at the Gospels, you can't actually, uh, other than Mark, say that the authors knew that they were writing Gospels. And uh, as I make that statement, that might, you might say, what do I mean by that? Because I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I assumed that the term gospel was pretty much synonymous with the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in fact, there are many other gospels that are written. And that word, this is the good news, or depending on your translation, this is the gospel of Jesus. The good news or the gospel is actually a, tra- it's a different translation of the same Greek word. And it's evangelium. The evangelium. And there were evangeliums that existed outside of the New Testament. Uh, you may have heard of some of them. Some of them are, are kind of pseudo-biblical gospels. But there was actually also totally non-Christian, non-Jewish gospels as well. And in fact, as Mark says here, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is actually drawing upon a very particular historical event that was happening right before the time of Jesus. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that event just so you can understand what this means, the good news, what exactly an evangelium is. Many of you may be familiar with uh, a map that looks somewhat like this. It's the Roman uh, Republic under the rule of Julius Caesar the creator of the Caesar salad. And uh, you may recognize that statue maybe or not, but the red is is the Roman Republic under his rule. And uh, in uh, right, uh, sorry, in, where do I see here? 44 BC, Caesar, uh, or Caesar, not Caesar, sorry, Julius Caesar is assassinated in the Senate. And as a result, there's this war that breaks out, this civil war, And there's some minor scrimmages and battles. And once they get all sorted out, you see the the two main leaders come onto the scene. And they are Octavius, who takes uh, rule of the western part of uh, the Roman Empire. You'll see basically everything to the west of that red line. And Mark Antony, not Mark Anthony, the Latin heartthrob, but Mark Antony, 
uh, who takes dominion over everything on the eastern side of that red line. And what that map is also saying is Mark Antony, where, oh, I see that, that's some poor layout there on my slides. But anyway, Mark Antony, uh, he uh, was romantically involved, sort of quasi-married to Cleopatra in Egypt. And so what you see is uh, all the dark green on the the right-hand side of the map is all the things, all the parts of Egypt that Cleopatra was uh, in charge of and ruled over. And kind of Mark Antony's final, uh, his fate was finally uh, sealed because he basically gave away a whole pile of the Roman Republic to Cleopatra and uh, her children. And so that's what you see all the way up to the right hand, top right-hand side. He, he just gave it all away. Shockingly, the Roman Republic and Roman Senate wasn't too excited about that. And so uh, Octavius came in, and they basically decided to duke it out for control of the entire Roman Empire. And the final battles took place in Egypt, which is down in the right-hand side. And uh, Octavius wins, and he reunites the entire Roman uh, Republic. And at this point, he, do so- he does something. He changes his name to probably a name that you might be familiar with, Caesar Augustus. So Octavius is Caesar Augustus. And he reunites the entire Roman Republic, and in fact, what we call it is the dawn of the Roman Empire, because he refuses to give the power back to the Senate. And he becomes the emperor, the ruler of the entire uh, Mediterranean world there. You can see that his rule, because of his conquering of Egypt, is so much even larger than that of Julius Caesar. But as you might guess, in a world before direct messaging or Twitter or what other forms of communication, phone calls, whatever, if you're fighting a battle in Egypt and the center of your empire is in Rome, it's going to take some time for the message of your victory to get from Egypt to Rome. But you want that message to get from Egypt to Rome as fast as you possibly can to secure your place as the ruler of the empire. And so uh, his armies are obviously in Egypt. He can't just take them all back to Rome right away. So what he does is he sends out messengers. He sends out messengers to all corners of the Roman empire, in particular back into Rome. And he sends them with this thing called the Evangelium. The good news, or the gospel, of Octavius' victory. And so what we see is that this term, the evangelium, is actually a message. A message, a pronouncement of victory. That there is a new ruling power in place. He sends this thing called the good news. And obviously, if you're a fan of Octavius or if you are Octavius, sure, it's good news. But the reality is, good news is not good news to everyone. There are individuals who would have been in Rome who would have been aligned with Mark Antony. There would be individuals who would be in the far reaches of the Roman Empire who were conducting their own little rebellions and skirmishes. And when the messenger arrives with the good news about the victory of Octavius, they are presented with a problem. There is a new ruling power in place. And so are you going to fall in line? 
Are you going to get on board and serve this new ruler? Be a part of his kingdom? Or are you going to get out of town? And this, this is the message when we say the message of the Gospel. What Mark is doing right here is he is proclaiming the victory of Jesus over any sort of ruling power in that day. The Gospel message is simply this. Jesus is the new ruling power. There is nothing that can stand up to Him. And if you are not in alignment with that new ruling power of Jesus, you have to make a choice. Are you going to get involved and serve Him? Or are you going to get out of town? Are you going to try and rebel? Because there is a new ruler in town. The Gospel message is just simply that. We throw that term around, the Gospel message in church all the time. And the Gospel message includes the coming of Jesus. It includes Him dying on the cross and and being resurrected. But it only includes those things in so much as it uh, establishes the victory of Jesus. That's how we attain the victory. We attain the victory through the the decisive act that Jesus did on the cross and in His resurrection. But the message, the Gospel, is the victory. We walk with a message of the victory of Jesus. I don't know about you, but our culture is one that is uh, immensely interested in the spiritual realities and spiritual phenomenon. Uh, I, I... understand that you have been uh, kind of going away, plugging through Ephesians and looking at uh, spiritual reality, spiritual warfare. And so as a result, I wore my shirt. Uh, I'm not putting anything out there for you, Sky, but I'm thinking this would be a good pastor appreciation for James. But pastor because hardcore devil stomping ninja isn't an official job title. (laughs) That, that, I don't know about you, that's, uh, that's James if I've ever heard it. But, uh, I wore that because we're going to be talking this morning about what the victory of Jesus accomplished over spiritual realities. We live in a world that is just mesmerized by spiritual things, by this paranormal phenomena. Uh, There's a couple studies that have been done. And a Baylor religion survey 10 years ago even found that at least 70% of Americans firmly believe in paranormal activity. According to the book Paranormal America, almost one-third of Americans have consulted their horoscopes. Nearly 12%, about 43 million Americans, have personally consulted a psychic, medium, or fortune teller. Nearly 25% of Americans have seriously investigated ghosts, haunted houses, UFOs, UFO abductions, or UFO government conspiracies. Nearly 21% of Americans actually believe in Bigfoot, the Yeti, or the Loch Ness Monster. I used to work with uh, teenagers. I don't know about you. This one hits home with me. 73% of teenagers have actively participated in contacting the dead and other related witchcraft activities. Four out of five teenagers have consulted their horoscopes even if just for fun. 
I know some of you might be thinking, well, that's just, you know, the Bigfoot, Yeti, Loch Ness, so that's a good laugh. That's those crazy people who are on the Discovery Channel. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched one of those shows. It's like a half hour of running through the woods, and at the end of it, they have found absolutely nothing, all right? Like, I, I don't know about you, but anyways, uh, it is not just for these crazy, uneducated, fringe society people. In fact, uh, they did a, uh, they've done multiple surveys of graduate and postgraduate students, and what they can find is a direct correlation between more education and a belief in the supernatural paranormal. Because as they find is as people begin to learn more, have more questions, and come into more contact with things that they don't understand, they must chalk them up to spiritual realities that lay behind the physical that we do not understand. Nor is the spiritual realities of uh, our culture uh, just um, contained to non-Christians. The American Federation of Certified Psychics and Mediums lists over 300 psychics and mediums that claim to also be Christian-ordained ministers. Television shows, movie franchises, best-selling novels, haunted houses, ghost hunters, fortune tellers, channeling, psychic fairs, UFO sightings and abductions, government conspiracies, Bigfoot, Loch Ness, and much, much more paranormal phenomena are at work, active, and in the minds and lives of all of us. We live in a culture much like that of the first century in which there is a plethora of religious, spiritual activity going on. There is a pile of religious synchronism in which we grab one spiritual principle from there or one spiritual idea from there and meld them all together. There is an interest level, a desire to know and understand and even participate in the spiritual realities of this world. And into this, into this world, both the first century and now, Mark is speaking Mark says, this is the gospel, the good news. The good news is this. There is a new ruler in town. We see and understand the victory of Jesus in such a practical way because we understand the signs of the times. What we find in Mark is that Mark doesn't mention even the birth of Jesus. He spends very little on the baptism of Jesus and the temptations of Jesus, and even very little on the callings of the disciples. Matthew and Luke both pick up on those and expand them for different reasons. But in Mark, what we see is after a proclamation of the good news, the victory of Jesus, he almost kind of jumps real quickly over a couple initial things, a couple initial grounding statements about who Jesus is, and he plunges himself into a number of stories. A number of stories that actually show Jesus coming up against the principalities, coming up against the ruling powers of the day. And so that's where I want to 
pick it up, which is Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. With such authority, he taught. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit began shouting, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus cut him short. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed and threw the man into a convulsion and then came out of him. Sometimes when we read the Gospels and we, we talk about spiritual realities and exorcisms, what often comes to our mind is uh, normally a couple different stories. One of the stories that often comes is, is the man who is in chains and who comes out of the tombs uh, and who is you know, possessed. Uh, another one is the, which is kind of the same one, but sometimes we don't always think about the same one, but is Jesus casting the, the demons out of the man and into the pigs. And uh, in both of these stories, what we often tend to come to is this point which we say, I recognize that yes, there are spiritual realities, but they're out there. They're on the fringes of society. As uh, I had mentioned, it's not just the uneducated. It's not just the, the backwaters of society in which spiritual realities are at work. But we have a, t- a tendency to think of the extraordinary stories of exorcisms and possessions, and we think of them as, oh, those are just the people on the fringes of society. But here in this story, what we find is Jesus in a synagogue, a place of worship, a place of teaching, of training, of the center of uh, well, the local center of the Jewish faith. We find a man who, by all accounts, seems like an ordinary, average guy. He's not being disruptive in the service. He's participating. He's there. He's just you know a regular old dude. But when Jesus begins to speak with such authority, when He comes and presents the Gospel message to these people, we find in the middle of that super ordinary situation, we find the demonic at work in the life of an individual. The demonic is not this crazy, otherworldly, other-cultural type thing. It is active in our world just as, as, as much as it was then. What may, uh, or sorry, amazement gripped the audience and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey His orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly through the entire region of Galilee. The truth is is that 
many have tried to downplay the reality of Jesus interacting with the demonic. But uh, Jesus' interactions with the demonic are actually one of the most historically reliable parts of the Bible. And what I mean by that is this. In the first century, there were, Jesus was not the first person to come up against the demonic in, uh, in the life of the Jewish faith. In fact, uh, the Jewish faith had what we would consider today professional exorcists. People whose work it was and calling and ministry it was to uh, show up when people needed deliverance. They would wear a uniform that would uh, identify themselves as such. And they would come and they would do these performances. In fact, you'll find in Matthew, a, a, a teach, as Jesus interacts with the teachers of the law, he kind of turns it back around on them because he says uh, they're accusing him of, of being of the devil. That's why he can uh, command the evil spirits. And he says, well, you have exorcists who also command the demonic. Are they also of the kingdom of Satan? And uh, at that point, the teachers of the law go, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we're not going to say that. We're not going to pronounce that of them because we, they legitimately believed that there were professional exorcists who were carrying out deliverance in the life of the Jewish community. And so Jesus was not uh, the first and not unique in that sense. But as you'll find out, as the people encountered the teachings of the Jesus, he was unique. He was unique because he brought and taught with such authority that people would uh, recognize that he did not act the same as the first century exorcist. See, a first century exorcist would command a spirit to remove by doing one of two things. They would use a religious icon that they believed had some sort of connection to uh, powers of a deity. Or they would use some sort of uh, rhetoric or liturgy or essentially a spell that they believed to also invoke the name of a deity that uh, had that power. And so they would use one of those two objects. But the, the, the common thread is that they would use a name or an icon connected to another authority figure so that they could have power to cast out the demon. Jesus comes, and the people are so amazed at his authority. Why? Because he does not use any sort of icon. He does not use any sort of liturgy. All he simply does is speak to the demonic. Be quiet and come out of that man. And they follow. It's his authority. It's his lack of being able to draw on some sort of other God. Some sort of other name? Why would they respond to Him and to His words? And in fact, Jesus became recognized in the first century and following centuries as someone who carried such authority. In fact, there's an inscription in the Greek magical papyrus, or the PGM. It was a book written, uh, or it was a book found in Egypt relatively written around the same time, written around 300 A.D. So this is 250-ish so years after Jesus. And what we find in this, in this papyrus, this inscription, is instructions or liturgies 
of how to cast out the demonic, how to make the spiritual realities respond to you. And in this uh, papyrus, this uh, instructions or liturgy, we find this phrase, I adjure you by the God of the Hebrews, Jesus. Jesus' place as an exorcist is not only historically reliable because we read it in the Bible, it actually traveled beyond the biblical text and the biblical narrative. People outside of the Christian faith began to use Jesus' name to make spiritual realities respond to them. Because there is authority in the name of Jesus. So our question this morning is why is it that this conflict between the ministry of Jesus and the demonic was so evident, so historically reliable, it was a a part of the very narrative of the proclamation of who Jesus was? Why is it that that ministry that characterizes Jesus sometimes may not characterize my ministry and my life. As someone who, as a professional pastor, someone who declares that they are a follower of Jesus, someone who says that what Jesus did, I want to do also. Should not my ministry then take me into direct conflict with the same spiritual powers that came and ran up against Jesus? Should not the lives of every Christian, every Jesus follower, the fact that we call ourselves Christians, Christians, right? That word comes from somewhere. Followers of the Christ. Should not our lives be like His life and make our life come up directly into conflict with the spiritual realities of this world? Should we not also walk with such authority from Him that when we walk in and we recognize the demonic or spiritual realities at play, should we not be also able to speak to them in such a way that they recognize the authority within us and respond in such a way to proclaim the victory of Jesus? What do we do with the fact that Jesus said all authority under heaven and on earth has been given to Me? He wasn't speaking in some sort of hyperbole. He wasn't exaggerating. He was saying, this is the authority that I have. And then what do we do when He commissions His followers and says, go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cure those with leprosy and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. The commissioning of Jesus represents an authority placed in you that comes from the God of the Most High. 
This is good news. Not good advice. Not some things that you should consider. Not some good wise choices you might consider making. This is good news. The evangelium, the proclamation of victory of Jesus over the spiritual powers of this world. I'm wondering this morning, and I I feel kind of a little funny as I say this to some of you because I have worked and ministered amongst you and, and know who you are. And I know and recognize the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus that you walk with that you come with in each and every situation. But I'm wondering, can we make a commitment as a community, the followers of Jesus, that we will be people who wherever we go, in whatever situation we come into contact with, we will be people who walk the victory and pronouncement of Jesus' overcoming of any spiritual realities. That we will walk that into every area of our life. That we will begin to proclaim over the lives of ourselves, over the lives of our children, over the lives of our family, over our neighbors, over our workplace. We will begin to proclaim the victory of Jesus. That we will be people who walk with such authority that though it may take us, and though it will take us, into direct conflict with the enemy, We know that what is within me is greater than anything I will run up against. I recognize that probably as I went through some of those stats and the overwhelming uh, recognition that spiritual realities are at play in our lives, I I, I would, you know, I'm taking a shot in the dark here, but I, I think I can probably land it. There are individuals of us who are here this morning, who have experienced spiritual oppression, who have experienced spiritual bondage, who feel the enemy coming against them in very real, tangible ways. And so this morning, we are going to do something that I believe every follower of Jesus is called to. And it's going to uh, require of you a little bit of boldness. Can everybody say boldness? Yeah, then say it like you mean it, right? Boldness. All right. We are going to exercise the victory of Jesus in our lives. See, because when Jesus was commissioning His disciples in that paragraph, actually, He wasn't even commissioning His disciples. He was commissioning 72. He was commissioning a crowd. Because the commissioning of those people was not linked to just a special few. It was not linked to Peter and the, you know, the, the, uh, the line that would follow as the leadership of the church, Christian church. He was not just commissioning pastors or elders. He was commissioning followers of Jesus to go and announce the Gospel. The Kingdom of God is here. Heal the sick. Cleanse the leper. i got to turn around. Cast out demons. Did I miss one? Raise the dead. Oh, that's a good one. Raise the dead. (laughs) Cleanse the leper. Cast out demons. As freely as you have been given, give it away. 
This morning, if, those are, if there are some of you here who believe or have felt the oppression of, of, of the evil one, we want to make a place and a time for you to receive ministry this morning. And while I'm going to call on the elders to lead the way in that, this is not confined to a ministry of a pastor or an elder. And so I'm going to ask that you use some boldness, that you would be willing to get up to move and to begin to pray and uh, speak the victory of Jesus over those people who are in need of deliverance, who are in need of freedom, who are in need of a touch of God this morning. Would you be so willing as to do that? I asked for some prayer time at the end for this very reason. This is that we've got time. You're not going to be late for Swiss Chalet or any other, wherever else you're going. We've got time to press in this morning for what the Lord wants to do in our lives. I'm going to ask right now if there are some of you who would use some boldness to put up a hand and say, I am in need of prayer this morning. I am in need of the church coming to gather around me and proclaim the victory of Jesus. You may feel comfortable to share with them what is going on. You may not, and that's totally okay. Even if you can't begin to share, we will still pray for you. We will still lay hands on you and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. See, there was this funny thing that happened as the message of Christianity began to spread. As Caesar Augustus began to take authority, he began to distribute the message, Caesar is Lord. And the Christianity, as they received that message, did this great subversive act of rebellion. And they said, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the one who has the victory, the authority, and the power. 